Today's podcast features one person's younger days. Tosh Berman tells of growing up in a world populated by his dad, the famous artist Wallace Berman, and countless other intriguing people, be they luminaries or otherwise. His book had me musing about childhood, as have recent news stories and images. Youngsters panicked amid mass shootings, others seeking asylum only to be put in cages. Still others with parents spending much to slide their offspring into fancy schools. All of them kids facing quite an uncertain climate and future. I am your podcast interlocutor, a position of utmost stature, and yet today, consider me just another Wizard of Oz. After Toto's pulled the curtain, left with few precious tricks up my sleeve. So I placed my faith in that classic work of cinema, Night of the Hunter, when it says of the children, they abide and they endure. Let us now hear one telling of childhood and beyond, including delight, heartbreak, and endurance. Well, hello, everyone. Uh, this is a hole in the air, correct? That's what we're calling it these days, I think. Hole in the air. Mm-hmm. It's yeah. nice. It's a nice ring to it. And we are really delighted to have as our special guest, Tosh Berman. The we is myself, Paul Michael Newman, Renee Nahum, and Gabrielle Newman. And it's actually, I guess, the day before Father's Day. Oh, wow. No, two days before. It is before not. Day. Two days. Yeah. Two days before Don't Father's be greedy. Day. Yeah, so excited. Are we in 2019? 2019. 2019. Um, and while it's a, that's a holiday that I can't claim I have much regard for, uh, still I can think of no one better to discuss father-son relationships and other things, many, many other things. Uh, it is the ultimate Father's Day book, I think. Yeah. Tosh Berman speaking, and yeah. uh, he is discussing his book, which is Tosh Growing Up in Wallace Berman's World. And so that's, I guess, the chief topic, perhaps, of uh, today's podcast episode. And so uh, maybe, Tosh, I can begin by asking you just to... Yes. Briefly, if you want or not, to discuss uh, why you wrote the book and what it's about. I wrote the book because throughout my life, people always ask me about my father. And my father, though his name is known in the art world and in certain social circles, um, he's still a very much of a mysterious figure to a lot of people. And um, there's been a lot of stories told about him that's not necessarily true or exaggerations as well as just people just curious about that whole era of this or of the beat era or sort of the hippie Topanga Canyon era. And um, I really didn't seriously think about writing the book until a gentleman by the name of Carrie Lauren, who is part of a group called Destroy All Monsters, a Detroit art collective and music band. And he, his fellow associates was Mike Kelly and Jim Shaw, the artist. And uh, he asked me to, he was a big, Wall, he was a big Wallace Berman fan, and he asked me to write something about my father for a website that he was a guest editor of. I think it's called Beatitude. Yeah, Beatitude website. So I wrote like a 1,000-word little mini sort of memoir being with my father. And the reception I got was really good from people who read it. And so you know, I always felt being a writer is sort of a performer. I mean, there's a thing between you and the paper, you and the computer, whatever medium you choose. But there is something about... At least when I'm writing, I'm thinking about a public of some sort or audience of some sort. So 
having sort of uh, requests from an audience in, a, in, a, in such a manner, that got me started to write the memoir. How long did it take you to? Up and on, not like every day, but 10 years. Cause I did other things in that 10 years as well, but it, it was a 10-year slog. Is what? that starting at the point at which you... I was curious, reading it, when you decided that you were going to write a memoir, if there was a particular moment. A uh, particular moment, not, not a specific moment, but I felt time was passing, and I didn't want my father to disappear into the cracks of other people's memories. Because um, there's so many, like, just little things that drove me crazy about reading about my father that's just, like, totally wrong. It's almost right. It's even worse, but it's almost right. They, Such as? Well, there's, I, somebody this report, you know, in one of the books I read, somebody said that he sold heroin at high school. And then, you know, okay, he, he definitely smoked pot, you know, and he definitely had some criminal overtures. But it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, he, he sold heroin at high school. And these are usually people just come out of the blue, because if you're doing a well, law experiment, obviously he's sort of a juvenile delinquent, so therefore... Heroin, of course, because you look at um, the, all the film, there's somebody shooting up in the beginning of the movie, and therefore, you know, that means, of course, he was a heroin you know, dealer at, at in high school. And it's not a moral issue if, he's, you know, if he sold drugs or not, but it's just one of those little things that easily could be manipulated over time and time. And then people have moral stance against him selling heroin when he didn't sell heroin in the first place. Another thing is the, the magic issue, because he knew Cameron. And for those who don't know, Cameron is an amazing artist. She was married to Jack Parsons, who invented a rocket fuel to actually make rockets go out of space. But by night, he was a, a magician and an occultist, you know, and he's a very sort of, a, he's an interesting person. So just by the fact that my father knows these people, of course, means that my dad was deeply heavily into magic because he has an interest in Kabbalah, and we all know Kabbalah leads to, you know, Orgies eventually and heroin and heroin, heroin. <laughs> and children <laughs> sexuality. So it's obvious this was going to happen. So I kept that in mind too as I as, as I was writing the book that I wanted to not tell truth that has to be truth, but the fact is you know that's not the case usually. And um, and he's still a very interesting person even though he did not sell heroin or. Do you think that that period of art? in California is sort of overlooked a lot as important as it was. It is in a you know it's very strange there's a whole strange New York central thing where um it's way better now. But like I remember in the 70s my dad had shot the Whitney Museum after he died a solo show. And I remember like meeting a critic from Art Forum and his whole attitude was like New York doesn't New York does this New York doesn't you know and it was sort mm-hmm. of like okay that's New York but you know what has that to do with the rest of the world. But there is a certain type of thinking where everything comes, you know, media is in New York, art is in New York, and therefore nothing out of New York is that interesting in America. I mean, you know, London, I think that New Yorkers saw London as an equal, or, but in Paris it's like, you know, that's gone, that's history. But, um, you know, Los Angeles, obviously throughout my life, had, is a huge prominence in, in in American arts, mm-hmm. always has, always will be, and always you know in the past. And um, strange enough, I mentioned in my book briefly is a guy named Robert Fraser, who was a um, English art dealer. Yeah, he was a friend of the Rolling Stones, friend of the mm-hmm. Beatles, friend of the whole '60s British pop world. Close associated with David Hockney, Peter Blake, artist Richard Hamilton, and. <clears throat> 
like all other art dealers from around the world will go to New York, of course. But he went beyond that. He went to Los Angeles through, I think, his friendship of uh, Dennis Hopper, the um, art collector Mm -hmm. and uh, actor. And uh, Dennis introduced him to my dad and introduced all the the other Ferris uh, gallery artists. And therefore, Robert Frazier had a show in London called Los Angeles Now. And uh, it was a group show. And it was the first time that my dad was ever in a show in Europe at the time, or, you know, when England mm-hmm. was part of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> we could just say England yeah. now. But, um, so it was probably like one of the first shows where, where, um, where um, a, a person from England focused on a specific city in America, which is Los Angeles, which to me it seems to be such an obvious choice. And this was, mm-hmm. I'm sorry, I, no. there were just a lot of names and I d- didn't know most of them and oh, read okay. them quickly. He was the Sergeant Pepper connection? Uh, yes, he, uh, in my opinion, yes. Okay. You know, in my world, there's no, like, Definite. A goes to B. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, but he was who you talked about. Yeah, logically. Your uh, guess as yeah, to why guess, your father was included. Because Robert Frazier was one of the consultants of the Sergeant Pepper cover. There's, like, the Beatles. They chose their own people. And I think most of the people, the Beatles shows or people like Gandhi mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and a lot of English uh, uh, entertainers, um, music hall entertainers. And then, um, and I think, I'm not sure if Peter Blake had any choice, but, my, but definitely um, Frazier chose my father, Larry Bell, who's a Los Angeles artist and is still living, and maybe some of the key people, maybe William Burroughs. But William Burroughs was sort of pretty much of a Londoner. In the mm-hmm. '60s, so the Beatles probably didn't know him. This is to time. be on the cover. Too, on the, the cover, Sergeant Pepper. Yeah, my father is one of the faces in Sergeant Pepper. How many of the uh, persons on the cover have you actually met? Even if all of them, <laughs> <laughs> everyone, even the dead ones. Um, <laughs> I see. I met Burles. I met Larry. I met um, Larry Bell. Uh, that's a good question. Have you ever asked that question? That's a really good question. Uh, I never, no, that, I think that's it. My dad probably knew Terry Southern. He met William Burroughs. Uh, who else on there? He met Dylan, Bob Dylan. Um, very, actually, quite very few. I actually had an oddball, I still have it, I guess, uh, autograph collection in the late 70s mm-hmm. uh, using Anderson's, if you know Anderson's post, uh, pea soup. Mm-hmm. Uh, the postcards, I had huge number of them from when I would hitchhike mm. from the Bay Area here and went back here mm-hmm. from, the Bay, from the Bay Area to here and mm-hmm. back and I would stop in there and they'd grab a lot. Now they charge per postcard, but oh. then they were out there on the table. Uh-huh. And I ended up sending them. Steal them. them. That's well, what his father would say. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> well, that's a different story. But I would, I would write the elaborate uh-huh. letters, very flowery, and send them to all sorts of famous people. But Larry Bell. Uh, is one of the persons ah. most responded. Uh-huh. Um, it wasn't necessarily a question of my adoring somebody, although sometimes mm. I did. You just chose Sergeant uh, Pepper as your... <laughs> 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 I, think he, I didn't even remember that he was on the cover uh, uh-huh. until you, reading your book, but um, he wrote. He sent back a drawing, if I remember correctly. Oh, nice. Um, of what? Do you remember? I, I just mm-hmm. a figure. I'm, maybe you may have been giving me the finger. I don't even remember, but I, I'll go back and look now. Mm. Maybe you shouldn't. Maybe um. <laughs> sometimes memories are sweet when you just think there about them. <laughs> maybe he was having a bad day. But uh, in terms of it's being a memoir, mm-hmm. um, we're named after you in, in part. 
It's, it's, I have a hard me- my memory's not so good, so I had to name the book after my name. <laughs> um, how did that? Did it transition to the point where you were really focusing on telling the story significantly from your own perspective as you grew, as you uh, mm-hmm. grew older through uh, uh, childhood and then into uh, adulthood? Uh, or was that always your approach to the uh, book? My approach to the book is to write it for the eyes of me, yours truly, at that age as much as possible. So I wanted to have like a child point of a child or a teenager's point of view of what what's in front of him, in front of me. So when you read the book, you know, it's parts where I'm like tosh adult talking, but there's also parts in my you know reflecting on people. Like say like Marcel Duchamp, who I met. It's not me as an adult meeting Duchamp and going back. Oh, I was you know, I I I, I could easily put myself in the in that place and time when I did meet Duchamp or other people that you know of, the, of my childhood. So. I didn't want it to be um, like an art history book. You know, I didn't want it, you know, there's no footnotes, there's no uh, end notes. It's not an art theory book. It's just basically, it is a, a childhood memoir of a time and place and how I experience these people and my environment and landscape as a child and teenager. I, I personally really like that part of it. I like that. Um, Thank you. It, it, that um, in a world peopled by all sorts of intriguing, colorful, and often famous folks mm. uh, that you didn't necessarily try to put it into a historical context. Uh, the part, just as a, an obvious example, I guess, where you um, suddenly once reading that you were in a Warhol film, mm-hmm. Tarzan and playing boy, mm-hmm. Uh, we have a cheetah story of our own, but that's another. Story. Oh right, that's another subject. <laughs> no well, cheetah in this we movie. We actually don't have a cheetah story. <laughs> we, well, the story. We have a fake cheetah story. Oh, yeah, fake cheetah story. But that's another story. <laughs> that's <laughs> another <laughs> podcast, perhaps. Um, this is very postmodern. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But um, that Warhol and I don't know if I'd say entourage and mm-hmm. crew, what have you, came to your home. Yes, in Beverly Glen. Filmed. Tarzan, a, a, a version of Tarzan, mm-hmm. and that you were a boy in part, it seems, because you were the one of that age around. I, I was the only boy. <laughs> um, I mean, I was, I was typecast. Yeah, I, I, I really appreciated when you talked about whether certain artists were kid-friendly or not kid-friendly, because uh-huh. as a kid, that's sort of a big uh, aspect of what you pick up yes, on. Yes, very much you so. You know, regardless of whether somebody's a genius yeah. or kind. Kid-friendly is probably yeah, number one. It's, I've never quite heard that put in those in such a, a simple term before but i think in your um, memoir it was you were very successful in describing that at in that age mm-hmm. you could you can understand the child's mind by saying like this is where what where my room was and mm-hmm. i had this little area here or whatever or i met this person and through the memoir you you your voice changes mm-hmm. but if you didn't yeah. remember yeah. Warhol, in, that, in this case, you don't really see Not at all. That's mentioned. A, a highlight of the book for me, this is going to sound really bizarre, but I almost came running out to them to mention this, was mm-hmm. on a certain page when you're talking about, not anyone particularly famous, but some uh, group of friends of yours from a certain, I think it was middle school or high school, mm-hmm. I forget which, <laughs> and you mentioned a number Greg. of names, and then you get to Greg. <laughs> and Greg, you explained in a sentence, uh, if I remember correctly, you weren't even sure if he had attended the school at that point, and you perhaps mm-hmm. never had a r- really remarkable face-to-face mm-hmm. conversation one-on-one with him. Mm-hmm. 
<laughs> I think it was a, a single one-on-one conversation. <laughs> well, I'm trying to remember that part. Of it. <laughs> Greg <laughs> yeah. played flute, I think. But but the, my point wait, is, so oh, you, Greg, yeah, wait, yeah, hold on. Right. So yes, yeah. wait, so am I getting I this Greg. correct that you don't even remember <laughs> I do not, mentioning yeah. that you don't remember Greg? <laughs> Greg, Greg, I do remember. <laughs> you, you remembered, but it wasn't. I mean, we're not close friends, though. But he, but, yeah. he, but he warranted a place in the book because at that point he was part of the group. Part of the landscape. It, part of the landscape. Mm-hmm. Well, that's and, a very real part of life, and, having yeah. someone who mm-hmm. And it's, it wasn't, I didn't feel it was a question of something, which I've encountered in reading some mm-hmm. autobiographies, where there's sort of a laundry list of everything almost to fill pages. This was, your, you were talking about a group of friends some you knew better than others, mm-hmm. who were maybe a, a, to some extent a saving grace of, of that time and mm-hmm. that school. And to memorialize it is really, I think, kind of lovely. Mm. I, there are some things, mostly I, I felt you, you were, including perhaps with your father, you were not trying to be overly, or trying to be judgmental. Mm-hmm. You're critical of a few things in the course mm-hmm. of the book. Uh, we applaud how critical you were of Queen, the band. Oh, they suck. And, and we may want to ask well, you if you want to revisit that now. Many, okay, you know, it's, I've done so many interviews. And it's amazingly enough, people don't ask me the same questions. Hmm. Except... The queen. the queen. Queen comes up. Do you get Do you <laughs> get it from up. different angles? Because we, we're not fans. No. Uh, different angles. Family. Queen is a very controversial band. He is an ABBA fan. <laughs> okay, I like the ABBA part. We are not. Um, but. Well, I'm sort of an ABBA fan. Uh-huh. Um, he dragged me to a concert once in well, Orange free, County. Free tickets. Uh, well, Queen to me was always, you know, I like subtleties and nuances. That's my favorite type of music. Music that's not, that's like not obvious. But Queen is, is very obvious. And that's their genius, really. Like their genius is not... I think we will rock you tonight. Right. Or shall we rock tonight? No, we will rock you. Rock and that's, you, and, rock you. And that, yeah, if you don't get it, we're going to rock you. Yeah. And, and, you know, we are, you know, I feel, I feel, I feel like a winner tonight. It's not. We are the champions. And their genius is actually is to pronounce without any shame their, you know, and, yes. and that's a genius level, I think, of writing. But for me, yeah. I prefer the nuance or the, or the, um, the distancing from, Singer from the subject matter of sorts, the not the distancing from obnoxious, <laughs> from annoying. Well, I, I could say very few things about Queen because I might get death threats. Actually, yeah. <laughs> I won't go there anymore. Right? They, the, they, yeah. they have Dodger fan fans. I could die, I could so. die for Queen. It's okay. Or one, die, of, can, one of the things I think many of us ooh. can relate to as uh, liking certain music at certain times in our life, and, mm-hmm. and uh, your book. Des- describes uh, your life in Los Angeles, and but very s- particularly in different communities mm-hmm. that have had their own life, their own quality of life, uh, their own rules in some ways. Uh, each one sometimes distinct from another, but also in San Francisco and northern California mm-hmm. and north of San Francisco, um, having lived here, some of those certainly significant overlap here in LA. Um, when you mention a Moby Disc or a Bomb mm-hmm. stores, it's, it's also the, the stores, it's the particular bands, it's the particular album mm-hmm. cover, it's the act of sharing music with a friend. Mm-hmm. Part of the landscape. Building a, a friendship in many ways that way. Um, for you, I think, you know, so 
yes, Velvet Underground gets mentioned yes, it, and others. It's it's meaningful to some of us who. who yeah, you know, it's very interesting. You bring up an interesting subject matter. Like when you talk about Greg, <laughs> who's not important to me whatsoever, yet he, I was in his presence. I mean, through high school, I don't think we actually even talked to each other really. <laughs> mm-hmm. He's just part of the gang or the group that's always we meet in the quad. And I sit there with the other guys and girls. And there's always two or three people who are always there every day, mm-hmm. but you're not necessarily speak to them. Perhaps mm-hmm. you have experienced this in a like school situation. Well, when I was graduating, that um, when I was graduating high school, the class president or whoever it was who gave the speech, and this is the only line I remember from their speech, and I don't think of it often, but he said something like, you'll remember the people who you never spoke to, but mm-hmm. were part of your daily landscape. Um, once you graduate high school, more more than you realize. Yeah, that's probably, that's and I think that true. that's really true. Yeah. And I think your book in general, when you talk about your dad, too, mm-hmm. is a lot about friendships and social circles. I realize now regardless I, of how close individuals are within the circle. I there's reala- a big community feeling. I realize I mistitled the book. It should have been called Greg. Father's Day. Greg is it's a beautiful name. Greg. It's short for Gregory. Greg, Greg, maybe, you are. Maybe not. Greg, his little time was touching. <laughs> <laughs> and the father, I don't know, Wallace Berman. <laughs> so we didn't tell you, but Greg is calling in. Ah. <laughs> minutes. Um, he passed away, though. Oh, no. Mm-hmm. I heard that he had a sort of tragic okay. life. May I ask how, how you heard what the connection ended up being? In a very vague manner, and I don't even know the details. I think he suffered from alcohol abuse. Mm-hmm. Of some sort, even as a high school person, I think, it, and I think it just got worse and worse. But you know, I, when I heard the news, it was like for like Facebook. I mean, it's like you know, yeah, decades yeah. later. So it's not even tragic. This sort of strange. Another person who passed away recently is somebody by the name. Maybe you know him, Kafu, Gary Stewart. Yes, uh, Gary Stewart, and you know, I went to Bomp Records. You know, I know the music world so well. And I think anybody would just presume I would know Gary Stewart because he's he also I wrote a book about Sparks. He's a huge Sparks fan, and he actually I have seen him at Sparks shows not only here but in London as well. So I would again like my dad's a heroin dealer. Mm-hmm. You would presume that me and Gary are probably like good acquaintances or friends, but I never met him till like about four months ago. Hmm. You know, and then it was just, you know, I seen him in audience, and I even, you know, I even sat next to him almost. And but it wasn't until that three months ago where I actually introduced myself, or somebody introduced us together. He knew, I'm sure he knows who I am, as I know who he is. But the fact is, we never talked, you mm-hmm. know. Although obviously we have something in common, but it didn't happen. Well, I mean, you have the story about Burroughs. Sometimes you're in the same space right. as someone. That's amazing, and you too. Just, yeah, the story, ships passing. the story about Burroughs, for, the, for our, our listeners, is that uh, my dad published a little excerpt from Naked Lunch for his journal seminar, his hand printed, self distributed zine journal of the time, the late 50s. And, you know, we, he had no contact with Burroughs beforehand. He got that manuscript. Or that excerpt probably proves something like Allen Ginsberg, or you know, somebody in the in that world somehow came to my father's attention, and it was you know, six seven years later, eight years later, where we were in London, and uh, it was after seeing Allen Ginsberg give a reading, I believe, at the Roundhouse in London, and it, London at the time, and it probably still was in a sense, when it gets like eleven o'clock, it's like dead in the street, and if you're in a certain part of London, you can't find nothing. 
So a cab comes by, a taxi, a London taxi. So my dad called for it, and this guy who looks like a banker across the street called for it, and we got the car. We got the car. And my father said, well, we should, you know, he felt kind of bad about this guy being stranded, so he said, we'll share a ride. So, you know, we got in the back car, and, you know, and, and the London cabs have those little things. You pull down the seat, and he took that seat, and uh, <laughs> it was William Burroughs. You know, he looks like William Burroughs close up. But, you know, they introduced him, like, and my dad said, oh, I'm Wallace Berman. And he said, oh, I'm William Burroughs. And, <laughs> and that was it till he mentioned the address that we were going to, which was Robert Fraser's apartment. That's where we were staying. And Burroughs said, oh, I know that address. That's Robert, that's, uh, Robert Fraser's uh, place. And then, you know, a little conversation, and, and that was that. So we've gotten past the Greg, we hardly knew ye portion of this podcast. Now we've got the William Burroughs, we hardly know you. <laughs> um, and maybe, can we, first of all, let's stipulate that your mother is, sounds like a wonderful person. She's still with us. She is with us. And, uh, and there are things, maybe we'll talk about her, but mm-hmm. if we can discuss your father a bit, his... Mm-hmm. Um, first of all, can you um, say what you think of his artwork now and his films? And, mm-hmm. and to what extent do you relate to that? Do you feel that it shaped any part of your life? Not the fact of it and its <laughs> importance, but its actual quality and character. I mean, this is artwork? Yes. Like the artwork? Um, I don't relate to it in that sense. Mm-hmm. I relate to it because it's something I've saw, you know, it's always been in my presence for my entire life. So the issue that I live with it and I have seen it and people brought it to my attention and, and um, I, you know, it's in the household or was in the household, that's a bigger presence than me actually liking or disliking the artwork. So that's, on one level, that's what that is. On a second level... I think he is a great artist, not just looking at a work of art and being, trying to separate myself as being a, a family member. And I think he's a great artist because the subtleties and the nuances in his, um, in his work. He doesn't do We Will Rock You. <laughs> you know, there's, there's all these little strange textures in his work that I really appreciate. The making of the work, the devotion, his... Just that he was an artist. I mean, it wasn't, oh, here's the artwork I did. It's, you lived with him making art all the time and getting the, the whole process. And he never talked about his art. Right. See, this is the big thing. I think a lot of artists, I think, people go, I'm going to show you my work. You know, I want to share my work. You don't have to share my Yes, I really want to share my work with you. My father never talked about his work. I was in the studio with him on a consistent basis while he was doing his work, but he never talked about the work. He never presented his work like, ah, this is my work. Or he never made it anything more than something that he was working on. And I never talked about him, what he's working on, because he, I could see it's, he's working on his art, you know, working on his work. Are there any questions you have about parts, about aspects of his art that feel like mysteries that you wish you could ask him about? Or are you, or are you perfectly satisfied with um, the narrative you know, I was raised narrative to, he left Yeah, behind? I was raised to live with the mysteries and the shadows. I was, I was raised not to be precise, but to be vague and to be in the sort of shadowy areas of, 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 uh, of conversation and my dealings with other people due to my father's nature. Um, he... It's, you know... So there's, I, I'm working now with at least two or three, two art historians on a regular basis who are interested in my dad's work. And 
the questions that come up are all interesting, and I don't have an answer to mm-hmm. them. And um, it's, you know, just because I'm his son does not make me also an expert of his work, or anybody, if you're a Picasso's son. Picasso's son is not... More likely, not an expert on some, you. Some, no. some guy named Greg. And it's, in, you know, it's interesting, like father and son relationships. Um, one comes to mind is Terry uh, Southern, a writer, really interesting person, whose son, Niall Southern, who I never met, Niall Southern, and he pretty much takes care of his father's estate in a thorough manner. You know, he edits the diaries, edits the bio, wrote a biography on him. And, you know, organizes, I think, events for his father, you know. And I am not that son. Mm-hmm. I am. I am. I, there's no way I'm going to curate my dad's artwork, or I'm going to write an in-depth work about his art. The closest thing I can do for my father or about my father is, is my memoir. Talk. Do, do you? Do, do you wish? I don't know if this is a fair question, but do you wish that your father could read your book? Um, he wouldn't. No, that, that doesn't come up because well, because he's, he's not here, but. It, he basically hated everything written about him, or he found it that it was breaking his privacy. Mm. Whoever was writing it, it was a really good review in a paper about his work. He did not go. He didn't like ah, they understand me ah. ah I got attention. It's like mm-hmm. it's like almost like an invasion of his privacy. He never ever liked anything written about him, positive or negative or any other way. He hated being photographed. Unless by himself or in a controlled situation. Like, for instance, if he goes to an opening, if you go to openings, you occasionally will come upon like a photographer who right. works for the gallery or works for the media or something. And, and, and in the 60s, there was a lot of those type of photographers working. And they would take a picture of my dad, and my dad would come up to the photographer and say, I want the film in your camera. Mm-hmm. When they had wow. film then. And they, says, and they thought he was joking. You know, cause, you know, surely you're not offended because you know, that's what you're thinking. You know, we're not. And he said, No. I can't. I don't. I'm not supposed to be here. So you have to. You know, he made a lie. Like I'm not. <laughs> my wife doesn't know I'm here. Though that she's right there, and you know, I need to have that film now. And usually, he would get that film. He was very intimidating in that sense mm-hmm. that he would. He could get whatever he wants. And the other famous, I feel, I wrote about in the book is Al Ronowitz, who is an interesting journalist. He's one of those great guys who sort of has a good nose, ear to pick up new things. So he's like the first guy to write about Bob Dylan, and he actually introduced Bob Dylan to the Beatles, and he sort of turned the Beatles on to marijuana. They're like a bunch of pill heads at the time, but you know, he, through Dylan, they, they turned him on to pot. And in the late 50s, uh, Aronowitz was doing it. He worked for the New York Post in New York, and he came to San Francisco to write about the beats, you know, the beat artist Jack Kerouac and the Bergen, those people. And he interviewed my dad. And after the interview, um, my dad regretted doing the interview. So him and a friend, I think it was Artie Richard, who's this crazy painter, a friend of ours at the time, um, went to our, uh, Al's motel room in San Francisco and t- took the real real tape and destroyed it. And on that real real tape was interviews with Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac. <laughs> and oddly enough, and this is like sort of the charm of my father. He's a very charming man. Al and my dad were, became good friends afterwards. <laughs> I found it... I don't know how idiosyncratic it might have been, but it seemed in some ways uniquely true for your, of your father that even if he didn't uh, so much care about signing artwork... Um, no, he didn't. It was only it was told by somebody, like, you have to sign your work. You know, it was like, oh, okay. And he, he did it after he was told, but he never, he never even thought about it. 
he, he lived in his own world. You know, he had his own currency in a sense. You know, he didn't. He was not money oriented at all. And yet, uh, and he, in the book describes maybe that he wasn't. Uh, well, unlike some artists, he wasn't all crazed about his relationships with with galleries. He had them. He liked the galleries well enough. Yeah. But it wasn't something that he equated with his life with his capacity or, or nature as an artist. But when it came to, that's what my sense at least, mm-hmm. but when it came to where the artwork might go in someone's home, he would show up and want to hang the art himself. He was very, he's a control freak you know, when it concerns his work. Like, for instance, he, if you buy a piece, he will go to your house and, and put it on the wall of his choice in the house. Or if it's a group show, sometimes he was in group shows. And if he was in the same city, he would, he would, he would like to show up like, while they were hanging pieces. And he goes, oh, I'll help you. He's very, you know, he's gonna be very charming. Oh, he needs assistance, and he immediately just take over and, and set the you know the piece the way you know the pieces the way he wants right. it set in the show. Well, there's also there's a lot of integrity in that, I think. Well, there is, and a lot of younger artists are you know are, there there are a certain amount of artists who don't play the game, mm-hmm. and there are artists who definitely play the game. More artists who play the game. That's where you hear more. But I, but I definitely always approach by younger artists saying, "Oh, your father," you know, like. Like the role model because he's sort of like anti gallery, anti art world, money museum, and in in a sense he was. But he was very very much um, socially part of that world because he enjoyed the people's company. He enjoyed being part of that world. He enjoyed um, gallery openings. He loved gallerists. You know, he loved gallery owners. He himself didn't want to participate. In that world, because he didn't want to sell himself that way in that in that type of landscape or environment. So, as a child uh, growing up, mm-hmm. you had all all these different people, some characters part of the landscape. Yeah. Some, I'm not suggesting it was either or, but some famous and globally famous. Mm-hmm. You'd have uh, Brian Jones showing up. Yes. Uh, you and uh, you feel free to mention that. Uh, Brian detail. Jones showed up. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> um, I didn't see that coming. <laughs> well, and Brian Jones, because you know, Brian Jones was an original member and started the band, the Rolling Stones, yeah. the blonde hair, handsome young man. But some of those persons, mm-hmm. um, either you met, uh, that person may have been a friend of your father's. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe your mother's, uh, and or your mother's, and you knew them almost secondarily or down the line as someone of some fame. Some, mm-hmm. uh, you, I think Brian Jones, you recognize from your record cover. Yeah, yes and no. You know, like Brian Jones, I was always a young, since I was like eight or nine years old, I was buying records, you know, from Allowance or whatever. I was, you know, I was really cultivating a record collection as a young child. So I knew who the Rolling Stones were. I thought they were great. And my dad liked the Rolling Stones. So Brian Jones was somebody I knew of because I saw him on the album cover. I know who he was. I know he played the guitar. And um, so when I did meet him, I knew that's Brian Jones. <laughs> and what impressed me about Brian Jones is that he looks exactly like Brian Jones. <laughs> if you ever meet some celebrities, you always know, wow, their nose is really big, or that person, you know, that actor is really short. Or small. Or small, or like his, his teeth or his face is out of portion. <laughs> but Brian Jones looked perfectly <laughs> like Brian Jones. And it's almost like... What, what a talent. <laughs> well, he, he, when I first, not when I first met him, but he came to the house and he had like a black turtleneck, white pants and like desert shoes 
and he wears that same outfit in the in on the album uh, Aftermath, the back cover. And it just and it seemed like you know I was familiar with that album, and then seeing him coming into our living room or in our house in that manner, it was like, well, this is. It was a little strange. So, do you ever get starstruck, or is that completely just uh, starstruck? Dead, dead um, to you? No, it's not dead to me. I've never been star starstruck. Um, one time, I was invited to Jack Nicholson's house for a party, and it wasn't and it wasn't Jack Nicholson, and it, and the Warren Beatty was there, and it wasn't Warren Beatty, <laughs> and Julie Christie was there. No, Julie Christie wasn't starstruck. I admire, I mean, I admire these people as a teenager. The one person that made me feel starstruck, and my father as well, was Groucho Marx. Mm. Groucho Marx was there. I mean, he's such an icon, right? And and you wouldn't think, like, crazy sort of groovy 60s Hollywood, you know, um, or early 70s, and there's... Groucho Marx. That, I was starstruck. Did he have a lot of presents, or it was just Groucho Marx? Didn't have a lot of yeah, he was amazing. I mean, I, we didn't talk to him. I think we just like I think we we're on the other side of the room, just staring at him. Yeah, he looked just like Groucho Marx. He looked exactly like Groucho Marx. You know, old Groucho Marx. He was wearing like his little sort of beanie hat. And he, have you seen that film, Twenty Three Skidoo? Yeah, the Preminger film. With yeah. Jackie? Jackie Gleason. I think he had he had that sort of look. I think that that was like ten years. I mean, it's like like it's like when Chinatown came out. It's like seventy one, seventy two. So it's a seventy one, seventy two version of old Groucho Marx. Is there mm. stuff you did not you chose not to put in your book that there's actually quite a lot of things uh, because when I realized like why didn't I write about this person who's very prominent in, my, in my, our lives and it, but as a child didn't make a big presence. It, the people I write about in my book are people that I knew as a child and, and a teenager and who made an impression on me. Not an impression on me as an adult, but who made an impression on me at my age at that time. Is there anyone you regret leaving out? Uh, no, regret, no, because I could always write another book of sorts, I guess. Um, That's an impressive way to look at it. Yeah, I, I only feel bad if they read the book and say, well, how come I'm not <laughs> in your book? But... Um, it wasn't really because there were terrible... Nothing about who these people are. It's more about my... My book is very egotistical. It's just my impression on people who made an impression on me at the time and place. I never thought about, okay, Dennis Hopper. Well, he's kind of famous. So I guess I have to write about Dennis. Dennis actually had a, had a, a major um, impression on me. Had, his presence meant a lot to me as a child. Just not because he was famous, but just because who he is and stuff. His character. We were, we were at MoCA uh, mm-hmm. when she was essentially an infant. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a Zydeco concert for Frey there, and uh, Dennis Hopper was looking at her little tiny, barely a toddler, her being Gabrielle. Mm-hmm. And I think he had his camera. And mm-hmm. You could see kind of trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it was the same day that Dennis Martinez of the Expos was pitching a perfect game against the Dodgers. Mm. And I was following it. So around the eighth inning, this mm-hmm. is, you can mm-hmm. get for free the last inning or two. Mm-hmm. So I darted to my car, drove to Dodger Stadium so I could go in. And I saw the fi- final part that same day, mm-hmm. right, having just seen Dennis Hopper. Mm-hmm. I remember running in, and there were, Dodger Stadium was, at least back then, famous for Dodger fans strolling out, leaving before the end of the game. And there were mm-hmm. people leaving, even though it was a perfect game, and mm-hmm. they weren't giving birth. Mm-hmm. It was a close game. 
but that's my Dennis Hopper story. So you kind so of met close. Dennis Hopper, Gabrielle. <laughs> I remember it like it was. You I'm, go your I'm, book. I'm happy I don't remember it. Um, <laughs> you got you got to put that in your book. Yeah. <laughs> you really um, do. So. <laughs> This is your podcast interlocutor interrupting your listening pleasure to gently abrade our podcast personality who has spent, it feels like, years of our time on Earth with this digression. I wonder, should I hug him or muzzle him? And yet, thanks to his contextualizing, we can pinpoint the date and hone in on the special day that Dennis Martinez pitched his perfect game, July 28th, 1991. Knowing that, please join me in my time machine following this podcast. We'll swoop down on that bucolic scene. Wouldn't you choose that to be your time travel destination? Joyful Zydeco music. Couples dancing the Louisiana two-step. Dennis Hopper, camera in hand, and a quizzical but delighted expression on his face. L.A. outdoors in summertime. Young Gabrielle, bright with the future. Paul suited, half wanting to be there forever and half wanting to bolt over to Dodger Stadium, where the Dodgers losing pitcher Mike Morgan tossed a complete game and gave up only four hits and no earned runs. But those Dodgers still lost. 2-0. Damn bums. But, uh, my podcast pals, I am one over. This story was magnifique. For in my mind's eye, a fleeting moment has been illustriously burnished. Sheer sublimity. I interrupt no more. You mentioned Dennis Hopper, and there's mm-hmm. certain other actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, Russ Tamblin. And, and Dean Stockwell. Billy Gray. Dean mm-hmm. Stockwell, Billy Gray. Who uh, was in Father Knows Best, which was a, was a huge, mm-hmm. mega, me, all-American family TV yeah. show in the, in the 50s. Dennis so, Hopper is gone. The others are not. Uh, yes, that's true. And... Um, they're kind of they come across time as some of them, not so much um, the uh, gentleman from Father Knows Best, but mm-hmm. Billy, Billy Gray. Billy Gray. But the others come across as being wild. Uh, the six, you know late sixties and seventies things got wilder. Yeah, um, it's I found it kind of moving that when you mentioned that Dean Stockwell, maybe not every film and TV role that he take treat with equal seriousness but mm-hmm. a, really a, a great actor in a lot of things including as a kid mm-hmm. um and an important person it seems in, in your landscape yeah very much so very much so uh you do mention that you've really stopped for the most part interfacing with him except occasionally a hug and a uh, yeah, well, I, this, this could be even my second memoir. What happens when somebody dies and how that affects your social world is quite great. I don't know if you've experienced something of this sort, but if somebody like a father, brother, best friend, you're in a social group, if that person disappears, everybody sh- shifts their position in a certain way. And it's sometimes a break. it could be okay or something that could be very disturbing. <laughs> in my case, it was very disturbing. So have you heard from him or anyone else as a consequence of the book, that's come as a no. surprise? No, actually, I haven't heard from any of these people. I mean, I know Amber Tamblin wrote the mm-hmm. introduction or forward to your book, and mm-hmm. she, her father, of course. Russ, Russ Tamblin, yeah. I haven't actually heard of, you know, I, oddly enough, you know, oddly enough, I have not heard directly from, I haven't expected to, or I've not, or and I have not heard from anybody who read my book who's in the book, except from my mom and my uncle, 
and what did they think of it? Oh, they thought it was a total disaster. There's a lawsuit. <laughs> <laughs> Um, no, they actually they're I'm very happy they they liked the book. They liked it a lot. So I said, lucky. That's that's good. Um, you're, and and one of the things that Gabrielle mentioned in reading the book was uh, that you almost if there's any one thing that you uh, would sort upbraid that you would. Uh, Look at your father in a in a negative light about it. That he didn't he stopped your mother from yeah writing. Well, you you said that you to this day haven't forgiven him. Well, that. so I was I was just yeah, curious about I, about yeah. it, what the, what writing this. And she was writing. She, she regularly she irregularly or regularly had written uh, what a diary or some kind of uh, a diary, but almost like a probably like a social diary or just sort of like you know things that happened that day type of thing. No, no, I don't think it was a literary work. It was just more like Dean came to the house today and Russ was here or, you know. But it was a recording. It was an expression and it was her voice yeah. in some regard. Mm-hmm. Um, so what did, did she react to that at all? You know, no, she's very that? passive. She's very much of a... Of a um, when you, one thing I realized, because it's very interesting, is it's like how people react with things now is so different how people react then. People are like really outraged, like, oh, yeah, I can't believe, you know, the, the, how dare he, or the blah, blah. And it's very interesting, you know, on the, on the, on the, art, on the sense of like about, um, what's kind of a big subject? But like, one of the, I remember like after my father died in the 80s or 90s even, you know, I never being approached by a woman artist. I think she was a woman artist. I don't know her work or her name, anything. But she came up to me and immediately attacked at my father Mm-mm. because she, she saw his work was being anti-feminist or anti... Just before even knowing about the journal or anything. And he's like, okay, so why are you telling me this? Because I'm the son and therefore, you know, what's the purpose here? I mean, she was really angry. And that's interesting. You know, it's an interesting interaction or, you know, I could, but, it, but again, it's really perverse to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the whole... You know, we look at the beat world, the hippie world, as sort of a, a time of liberation, of, of, of a social upheaval. But the fact is, it wasn't a social upheaval. It was not a liberation. It's basically the same stuff, but with longer hair or a different fashion sense. And so the role of women at that time was exactly the same as it has been in the, in the war years. Well, actually, war years is better because they actually hired women to work in, you know. So that has not changed at all. Yet, on the same time, I mean, this is the, the, the paradox, my father had a great admiration for his fellow women artists, you know, like Joan Brown, you know, Jay DeFeo, uh, Judy Chicago later, Lita Albuquerque. He loved those, he loved their work. Uh, so, it's not like he is, you know, he, uh, compared to the other Ferris Gallery or other Los Angeles artist guys, there really were guys and were very sort of very macho. My father was very masculine, but he had a sort of feminine touch. Women loved him, and I think they loved him because he wasn't like you know, wasn't that he wasn't that approach. Yet he treated my mom in a very sort of strict sense, where you know, you're not going to write that journal, you're not going to write that diary, or you know, you're here to support me because you're going to support me as an artist. And so that, and he was very rigid, but he did not share that rigidness to, in the outside world. Do you think it was just a, a selfishness? He just wanted the comfort of... I think he's from his environment. You know, this is what you can't really, you know, you can't, people forget like his environment. He was pretty much of a, a street 
borderline thug who had a strong aesthetic sense, and that aesthetic sense saved his life or turned him around, that doesn't make him into a, a flaming libertarian, liberal, loving, you know, this main, but he just realized another texture in his life, and he went with that other texture. And his behavior was not shocking in that time and world. When I, this is where my voice becomes current when I look back on that. Then I realize, well, this is wrong. I mean, this is totally, this is a wrong thing he did. And, um, and I wanted to acknowledge that. It's not to put him down personally, but it's a whole culture. It's a, mm-hmm. it's a culture that he was mm-hmm. part of. And you can't really separate people from their culture. I mean, you can say, oh, that guy's terrible. But if you look at that guy, you look at his family, you look at the world he hung, you know, hung out with, it makes perfect sense right. why he mm-hmm. would operate in that manner. Well, you could kind of only watch people try to separate themselves from their culture, yeah. which I think you tried to do. Yes. And if, 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 I'm presuming if, a, you know, in certain circles or social world, if a male did it to a woman now, he would be probably called on by it, by, if not by the actual woman, a, a friend of the woman or the friend of the guy perhaps would. That makes kind of sense. But at that time in the 50s, that would not happen. I was struck by the passage where you were talking about him spanking you but crying. Yeah, he never and hit it me. it seems like being attached to some patterns he'd learned but also not feeling very comfortable He didn't lose his temper. He lost his... He just lost it when yeah. he hit me. And I don't, you know, I wasn't abused. I was just spanked. I mean, I never looked at it as more than just being spanked. But he was more disturbed about it than me actually mm-hmm. being, you know, I, I recovered nicely. <laughs> but, but he, you know, but I think for him it was a big sort of a turning point or something. He's like, you know, he never did that to me ever again or beforehand. I, I think uh, for me, in some ways, the what was most interesting and personal about reading the book was uh, your your well both how you come across as a, a young person in some ways sheltered in some ways not at all sheltered at all protected i feel i feel very sheltered um and probably from an outside viewpoint i was not sheltered but i feel it was a very strong you know at that time uh, especially in Topan Canyon years in the 60s and early 70s, was a lot of single women was like wild kids. And if they have a boyfriend or a father figure, it's probably like the local drug dealer or the local, you know, this, uh, the local Topanga thug. And, um, uh, although, of course, there was wonderful people in Topanga. I'm, I'm just a little exaggeration, of course. <laughs> but, you know... But I had a strong family structure. I had a father, I had a mother, and there was me. So there's always that. Fa- and, you know, we're sort of like father knows best. It's just the father had a little bit more longer hair than <laughs> than the dad in the TV show. And that's you know that, that was the only difference. The family structure was very much in place. I had but, two grand, I had grandparents, so I had a very strong structure that I was raised in. But the mother is often the one who brought the regular check in. She worked, and this made me a little bit different from maybe the typical family. She did. She had the paycheck. She brought in the paycheck. She worked as a sales girl at like a, um, various boutiques in Beverly Hills and elsewhere. And she was a model, like a, a drawing model for like May Company. Um, she did like an office job. My father pretty much insisted that he will stay at home and do his artwork, and he will take care of me, as you know, to a certain point. And the work that he did didn't always have a relationship to uh, money coming in, nor would it necessarily have to unless survival. Yeah, my father made money by gambling. He, he would He's good at card games, so he can like get some people to play cards, and he would automatically win. He was good at winning, and he was good at pool. 
and he was good at talking to people or playing pool or playing cards. He'll he'll play like gin rummy. That was like his favorite game. And he'll tell the other person, okay, that's you know, just give me the card because game's going long enough. You know, just give me the card I need. And he'll consistently tell that other person that till they start. They're they're totally losing it. He was psychologically just beat them to a pulp. And he was really good at it because he's charming as well. There's like a charm you know factor. And they never get mad, but you know. And as far as the. Uh earnings part of it mm-hmm. uh, you do mention in the book how uh, a lot of the culture certainly from his perspective involved bartering uh and it wasn't bartering is a big thing about price tags no not at all you know he would what a normal procedure would do he would go to the market talk to the manager or to the owner of the market at least in topanga and he would offer a piece of work and that person would take that piece of work and he gets a certain amount of credit at the uh, at the grocery store so he did that a lot you know, he did it at the bar there. He did it at the, you know, at the at the store, and he very much was sort of a, um, you know, he didn't own anything legally. He didn't own the house. Didn't own the car. My mother owned all that. Everything was signed under my mom's name. He didn't like to sign things. Obviously. No, but he had a driver's license. I think that's the only official piece of document. And a lot of his work, he gifted. He gifted or traded, or he was very flexible. Like sometimes a guy comes, I can only afford like hundred dollars a month, or. Fifty dollars, that's fine. You know, if he likes the person, uh, then it's fifty dollars a month. It depends. His need was at the time, and how much he likes the other person. Sometimes, um, you know, if he didn't like the person, they probably would not get the piece of work from him. You mentioned also in the book that it, it, with galleries too, mm-hmm. he would tell the gallery owner, "I yeah. want this amount of money for yeah. the piece," and didn't care what they sold it. For. No, he wouldn't care. They could have bumped it up. Oh, they do, or yeah, and he wouldn't care. He would, he want, he would like, I want a hundred dollars for this. If they charged a thousand or five thousand, he could care less. Right, it wasn't material to him. Not at all. He couldn't care less. No, so, so not at all. We're. Not really delving into uh, again what, I, what part of what I found really interesting, and I'm glad it's called let's say the full name Tosh growing up in Wallace Berman's world, but it's also your world, Wallace Berman's world. And <laughs> it's the, like Frank Sinatra's world, you're in the world, you're, you're dominated by that person. But a lot of that part of it, the part uh, involving Wallace, mm-hmm. to me at least, was. Uh, encapsulated in your thinking in terms of the TV show The Rifleman mm-hmm. with Chuck Connors and Johnny Crawford as the yeah. youngster. Uh-huh. There's a sense of almost oftentimes on that show, which is an old show at this mm-hmm. point, I don't want to say a silent partnership, but a partnership of relatively few words, but mm-hmm. of words too, mm-hmm. uh, of deeds, of of the chores, of the challenges, and, and the real trust mm-hmm. and the learning that the kid... Uh, experiences observing his father uh, go about meeting these challenges as well as the daily life routines. And I think uh, it's moving to see, uh, well, through a young person's eyes, even if the person is now older, uh, the sense of that kind of model, which was available to any of us who watched the show on TV Mm -hmm. and other shows, um, to to see the importance of having that kind of analogy, even if it imperfectly at times mirrors the actual mm-hmm. world we're in, um, that you had a sense of, a strong sense of a father-son relationship, even if it wasn't necessarily something you discussed with him. No, never discussed and, it. And also, I know uh, you discussed in the book, Batman and Robin yep. as being 
really may be available to a lot of its audiences mm-hmm. as a, a metaphor, if you will, for the son and father relationship mm-hmm. more than maybe. Rifleman had a profound, you know, thinking back on the Rifleman, I man enjoyed it because, you know, the guy shooting a gun or a rifle. <laughs> but when you look back at Rifleman as, a, as an older person, it's an interesting show because the father and son relationship is very tight. And also, he lived on a farm to go once a week to go to the town to get the goods. And it was like the big trip for both of them in a way. And that was very much like living in Topanga as my father. I didn't drive at the time. My mom did not drive, only he drove. So if we want to go to, uh, to the market or go to like a hardware store, we have to go with him and we have to do like five or six things on this trip. He never took like a quick trip to, you know, Everything. If we're going to go to a movie, we have to go to the market. We have to go to the groceries. You know, we have to go to this, the hardware store, the art store. If I go to the record store, all on the same trip. So it reminded me of, of uh, Chuck Connors taking his son to the town, which is obviously they can't. He can't walk. They have to, you know, probably an hour horse ride to get to town. And also, um, their relationship was very like uh, uh, very enclosed. It was very closed. You know, like this him and his son. You know, there was nobody else around, really. And, I mean, there was, like, the sheriff. And I think when, once in a while, Chuck Connors had, like, a, sort of a girlfriend, a sort of religious church woman that he occasionally sees. But it's really, a, a, like, a love story between the son and the father. And it's interesting, also, there is, there is like, a sort of sexual weirdness about it because Chuck Connors, who's very muscular, would often have to strip his shirt and sweat and work on the farm. Or he's tortured by somebody ruthlessly. Again, with no shirt on and sort of blood sort of aesthetically falling on his face. So there's definitely a homoerotic aspect of between the son and the father. Not saying this is a my my <laughs> relationship. But you know, but the rifleman had like such incredible amount of like um obviously these textures, you know, they're they're in the with the show. So I identified you know, as a as a, a, a as a creature of loving pop culture so much, clean rifleman and comic books. I Automatically identify myself as like Robin to Batman or to Johnny Crawford to uh, to Chuck Connors. I yeah I, I don't want to go way out of, out of our way to memorialize that one show, but uh, it was I've, I've seen it in recent years and it is both Spartan and rich. I think in a way that yeah shows like Bonanza are there's just there are too many other things going on and different relationships. Uh, one can think about a Lauren Green, but it's not. It's just mm-hmm. not got the intensity. Rifleman's interesting because also there's outside danger all the time. Right, yeah. and the gun. They're in the ranch. You know, they're in the ranch. He's he's chopping wood and he's got no shirt on. And then some mysterious stranger shows up, or five of them, like a gang, right? And they're kind of like loud and they're kind of obnoxious. And he's trying to be chilled out. He's trying to be nice before he shoots them all down dead. But like you know, then they they approach his son and then you know they say sort of weird things to the to Johnny Crawford, and he gets upset, Chuck Connors. Then he goes after his son, and then one of the guys sort of hits him, you know, like a bullying type of uh, situation. And that's a really big, there's a strong, like, emotional S&M social outcast. And I identify with that because living in Topanga is very much uh, what that is. Whereas it's fair to say that roughly, maybe exactly the same time, you had shows like Leave it to Beaver, Mm -hmm. which uh, I'm not going to say they are devoid of terror, uh, but you have to really turn it inside out in your brain and soul and whatever to to find that spot. Mm-hmm. Uh, I say that as somebody who once had a dream where the uh, actor, the character, the father, uh, 
went crazy with a knife trying to kill me. So I, I mean, I've been in touch with that horror that is in Leaving Father Beaver. really knows best. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I, I think that mm-hmm. uh, there, yeah, I, the, the uh, rifleman, which may have had people, uh, I was going to say, uh, uh, the director, I think he did. Sam Peckinpah. Yeah, I, I was going to say. Uh, so one of the writers. Really uh-huh. interesting people involved uh-huh. times. But uh-huh. it, uh, but it had a, 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 a a whether it's just a, a, a character to it or a courage to it that it tackled that kind of intense feeling between father and son in a, in a very remote yeah. world and also a very like you know they have to survive with each other and, this, and obviously the father doesn't want his son to wander too far away from him but it's unabashed in that show that, that intensity no. and, and I Americana too it's like this is what America is mm-hmm. so, strong male you know taking it, and and that was pretty much what my father, my relation with my father was like. So how so like father like son question mark? Uh, well, the rifleman, yes, in the sense where we're in a remote part of the world, you know, Tafanga, and my dad being very protective of me and being very you know very private and minding his own business and you know respect your neighbors but you don't have to hang out with them that type of approach in life that he, uh, I was very much part of that world due to my father. So I feel very much like Johnny Crawford and the Rifleman in that sense. That's what I picked up when I watched the show. And I mean, as a later, you know, when I watch it later, I realize this is sort of mirrors my life in a way, in, in my real life. So do you feel like uh, you resemble your father in, at this point of life? Uh, I don't know if I really, that's a good question. I don't feel, I don't. I don't feel like I am my father. I feel like I'm, I'm me, I don't feel. I don't feel. Um, I feel I learned a lot from my parents, from my father specifically, I guess. Um, but I don't feel. Um, I don't feel like Wallace Jr. Mm-hmm. I feel like Tosh. So the if book, that makes sense. Well, you're also older than he. Yes, ever but was. but even then, it's like you know, as a child, you know, being his world, it was such a. Radical. When he died, it was so radical. Everything changed so drastically because I was living on the ranch with him. And when he died, even though I was 20, I was really like 16. I mean, my mentality was 16. And so when he died, like everything changed radically. Everything. People changed. Outlook of the world changed. Never had anything so drastic in my life that took place when he died. It was amazing. And this was a negative thing as well as a very positive thing. You know, the duality that goes with it. But it was like it was insane. How the 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 you know, I didn't remember like when he died. I was in the I was like I couldn't you know my mom was there. I, just, I said I need some time by myself. So I went to the toilet to sit there, not to use it, just to sit on the toilet. And I thought when I leave this toilet, everything's going to be different. I'm going to be a different person. And sure enough, that's when he died when I left the toilet. So like it's. It, yeah, so I became a different, and then the whole world changed. His friends changed. Everything changed so, drastically. At the risk of, I mean, I'll sound a, a spoiler alert, but I, I don't think it's hidden even from the beginning of the book. No, that, never know. Uh, he he indicated that uh, he had said he would not live past fifty. Mm-hmm. There's fifty and chapters too. There's fifty chapters, mm-hmm. and that's um, that's the Kabbalah-esque. There's Kabbalah-esque part and, there, of that. and also there's there's little nuances of you know death is coming around the corner throughout the book. I mean, not, not, it's not heavy handed, but there's always a sentence mm-hmm. here and there if you. Read it carefully. You can see it that way. And on his fiftieth birthday, on his fiftieth birthday, he was struck. Mm-hmm. Struck by, a, I mean, it was a car accident, not his vehicular accident. accident well, it was, his it, was, it was a cra- in a crazy, insane 
incident where he died. I mean, you know, so you can imagine he goes kill. He he was killed in my car. Mm-hmm. I learned how to drive, and then, and then lost a car, <laughs> lost a car, lost a father. Um, but also, the person who killed my father was a not only was drunk, but he was really like a Twin Peaks bad guy. He's this really evil presence in Topanga Canyon. Mm-hmm. Very creepy guy. You had known him? I didn't know him until after he died. I didn't know him. But he, he was like sort of a combination of Frank Booth, but more lower version of a Frank Booth, like Blue Velvet's mm-hmm. Dennis Hopper role. And, um, he, and again, the pop culture thing comes up. The person behind my father was an actor by the name of Randy Mantooth, who's not that known anymore. But at the time, he had a show called Emergency about people, you know, saving people's lives and fires and accidents. And he was driving to Panga, and he was behind my father. If my father wasn't there, Randy Mantooth would have got it there. Yeah. And he's the one who held the prison killed my father. He's the person who held him there until the police came. So in a way, he reenacted his TV role in this incident. Yeah. So it's... So you know, so you get over that that aspect, and then it just got crazier and crazier afterwards. You know, like you know, doing was like Robert Shapiro, the uh, attorney, mm-hmm. who um, not on my side on on the on, on the uh, the drug dealer side, and so and then and sitting through that whole process was incre- it was insane. How long did it take you to uh, kind of get beyond that being such a? Oh, you never get beyond it because it got nuttier and nuttier. I mean, it's like it just and, you know, he basically got. He got a plea bargain thing where he he was sentenced for six months, but you know, he 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 left after a month, and after he got sentenced, the district attorney and the sheriff came up to me together, like I was like kind of what in the hell is happening here, and they came up to me and said, you know you got you have to do something about this guy, yeah, you know, they they actually are thinking like you should you know rub him out, kill him. And this is actually the sheriff and and the district attorney. Because apparently this guy has been a, a thorn in the side of the police for a long time, and you know, and I, and they were furious. They were furious, and the fact that they came up to me and saying stuff like that, like who's going to? I mean, now you believe it because you, yeah. <laughs> you see, police. but then I was like, you're like a sheriff, and you're telling me maybe I can arrange something to handle this person. You know, it was it was a weird situation, and after that, then everything becomes really Twin Peaks. Blue Velvet, you know, and when I mentioned, when I saw Blue Velvet, of course, and Dean Stockwell and Dennis Hopper is in it, and to me, Blue Velvet's not a work of fiction, it's a documentary, it's a documentary of Topanga Canyon life. Oof. So you, you uh, I don't mean to skip merrily through your later, later years between then and now, but... Not in my book, what I just um, told you. Next you, book, perhaps. You've, um, among other things... Uh, been in charge, I think it's probably fair to say, of a, of a really important uh, literary program at Beyond Baroque. I was the I was the director and curator of Beyond Baroque. Yeah, uh, which is for three years, four years, a, a vital. How would we put it? Literary institution, yes. bookstore, what have you? Yes, on the West incredible, Side. incredible place. Um, you've uh, you worked at uh, books. Book soup. soup for 25 years. I always confuse the names of bookstores. Yeah. Um, uh, off and on, 25 years. 15 years pretty much straight through, but 25 years. You hosted a public access show, which had some amazing guests. Some I did a show called Tea with Tosh. It was my version of an afternoon show, maybe 
in Italy, but with English subtitles. <laughs> I, had this, I had this whole vision of the show being like something about Italy. <laughs> and, and I was like Dick Cavett and William F. Buckley combined. I had that, that's my, my role models. And I was going to interview people I know. It was basically you know, like George Herms and Russ Tamlin, <laughs> Jack Hirschman and so on. And you've also uh, been a publisher. Yeah, Tam Tam books. Can you mention some of the books you've, you've been involved with? Well, I focus on French post-war uh, culture. So I, I dealt with a guy named Boris Vian, who um, amazing, interesting person on many levels. And Vian is a writer, of course, but he was also a translator. He translated uh, hard-boiled crime, English crime, American crime novels into French, and he was a huge jazz fan. He knew Duke Ellington, knew Miles Davis, close friend of Julia Greco, close friend of Jean-Paul Sartre, close friend of Javert Camus, very close friend of those serials who are still around. Uh, he knew everybody. He was a socialite of the Saint-Germain, uh, uh, Saint-Germain-de-Pre scene, which was very prominent in, uh, it was like you know, San Francisco North Beach. <laughs> Paris had its own North Beach scene, in a sense. Um, and um, I was introduced to Beyond's World. It's kind of crazy, but I was introduced to Beyond's World in Japan. Japan and France have a common love for each other. There's a surfacey thing they, they love about culture. And I'm using surface not in a negative sense, but in sort of an interesting. They love the fashion, the style, aesthetic. the aesthetic, you know. So if you go to, you know, at the time, especially in the late 80s when you're going to Tokyo, you can find like every weird old French EP or, you know, French cultural stuff, and it's all around you. And there, my wife, um, Luna Meno, told me, she read some of my short stories at the time, I was writing short fiction, and she said, you know, your work is like Boris Beyond. And I went, mm. Boris Beyond, is he a trumpet player? He's a musician as well. And, um, and yeah, and so I start, when she told me that, I start reading, she took me to a Japanese bookstore, and, it's all, and they had like every, every book of his is translated into Japanese. In America, nothing. So I thought, okay, this is interesting, you know. So when I came back to Los Angeles, I studied Beyond, and I ended up start publishing all his works. I did all his major novels, as well as Serge Gainsbourg and uh, uh, um, Gita Bor. I pretty much focused on the Beyond world, or, or the way I imagine, not imagine, but the way the Beyond world and his associates or his circle. So I pretty much focused on a very tight, tight group of uh, of writers and people who are sort of fell for the cracks in America at the time or in the English-speaking world. And then the name of the publishing house or label? Uh, uh, Tam Tam Books, which I named it after um, Josephine Baker, who mm-hmm. was a French, no, excuse me, American from St. Louis, American black entertainer, dancer, who went to France and became a really a mega iconic star. France has a really strong love affair with black American culture in the 30s, 20s, and when the Nazis took over, that stuff was cut off. Vian, in the post-war years, was the guy who opened the door and says yes to Miles Davis, yes to Duke Ellington, yes to William Faulkner, you know, yes to uh, you know, American you know, noir films and uh, the made in the 40s and 50s. So Vian was a fortunate person who was a gateway to American culture going into France, and I named my book Tam Tam Books is in honor of that of that gesture between France to America. I wanted to say, you know, because she had, had a role called Princess Tam Tam, and that's why I named it Tam Tam Books. Do you know if your father knew of Vian? No, this is okay. This is another weird thing. Um, I don't think he did. But there's a secret recording of my father that became a vinyl record uh, not long ago, and it was a conversation between my father and Hal Glitzman, who is the art curator, a friend of Walter Hopps. 
and uh, Jack Hirschman and his wife, Ruth Hirschman, who became Ruth's later life, Ruth Seymour, who became the head of KCRW and KPFK. And uh, it was a conversation recorded in my dad's and mom's house in, in uh, Topanga Canyon. And as I mentioned, my dad refused to be interviewed. Mm-hmm. So this was secretly taped. <laughs> so Jack Hirschman brings up Boris Vian's name in the background. Of all the names to bring up, he brings up Vian's name, and there was no reaction to the name at all. But I thought, of all the millions of names, I mean, I devoted 20 years of my life to Boris Vian. So was it just completely shocking? When you it was when I heard that, yeah. yeah the shows, you know, it, Yeah, it was eerie that, 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 that came up. I will note that Renee and I were in San Francisco a couple weekends ago, mm-hmm. and we went to a very popular and acclaimed breakfast joint. I'm trying to remember. What is it? Dolly? Dotties. Dotties. Yeah. Hmm. And on the walls are uh, a lot of pictures, nice pictures mm-hmm. of, uh, I think, mostly African American mm-hmm. persons, maybe all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the very first one is Josephine Baker. It's a year. Uh, uh-huh. And a lot of people are in there, so it's. Uh, that's well, she's, she, the she is the icon, you know, and she's. Um, um, She's an important figure. Um, was she not also kind of in the resistance a bit? Uh, I believe she was, yeah. She's one of the few, one of the few French-related people or, you know, who uh, didn't side it was the Nazis. And, and tre- treated, <laughs> har- treated poorly in this country, of course, uh, Yeah, by and large. Yeah. Um, Coco Chanel was a huge uh, yeah. supporter of the... Uh, yes. Yeah, she wasn't great. <laughs> she looked great. She was defined looking yeah. bad. <laughs> she had a little quirk. I guess I guess I want to make one last quick point in passing about your uh, father, just because I, I didn't really mention. I don't think you did, but you mentioned jazz mm-hmm. just now, and uh, he was he had a, a clear association, uh, important if to mm-hmm. some extent fleeting in terms of personal uh, business relationship with Charlie Parker. Uh, business, I would say, more of a, uh, a fleeting uh, fan. Artist relationship. Well, the artist, by that I meant his yeah. work was actually... For Dial Records. He did the cover yes. work of a crucial uh, 78, I guess A very was. crucial... Charlie rec- Parker. 78 RPM uh, recording of Charlie Parker. First time he appeared on a disc or a record. It was, a gr- it was like an a anthology of a lot of jazz musicians. And, it, it, and the label is called Dial Records, a very prominent... Um, label in Los Angeles in the 40s and uh, it was from a record store called Tempo Records that was on Hollywood Boulevard. It was totally a bebop jazz um, record store and uh, I I imagine it's very similar to my generation of like a punk rock store, you know, like they have their own label, no different really no no different, same same setup. But even even in later years uh, really throughout your life, while you've uh, made clear, you make clear that Wallace had an open mind and a contemporary uh, understanding. Very, very open. But he also uh, never deserted the love of the feel for jazz and no. pop jazz. No, he always loved that. He always loved that. But he had a very, he had a very uh, um, aggressive um, and a very understanding and a very curious about music. And he had a really, he had really great taste. I mean, he's like the first one. In our household, they brought in like the Velvet Underground album, which is not doesn't sound weird now, but then it was it was a strange record. You, first of all, you don't look at it as Velvet Underground; it was an Andy Warhol product, you know, because Warhol there's a Warhol film, there's a Warhol, Warhol record, obviously. Who who was on that record doesn't really matter. And then you know, and and uh, um, and he liked Kevin Beefheart, like the Trout Mask. He always liked the weirdest 
records from the the weird the weird artists. Which, let's face facts, still those records are things you can put on and, and drive certain whole masses of parents out of the room. It drove me nuts. <laughs> he he played like Bitches Brew, Miles Davis Bitches Brew, and you know he had an eight track at the time. And he played in his truck and he played like full blast. And it was like, you know, I was saying, I'm going, what is this? What is this? No, no, it should be the other way around. Right? But he actually, like, you know, he, his, his taste in music was is fascinating. And then many years later, this is interesting, he, he took me to see this guy named Joe Bryaf. You ever heard of Joe Bryaf? From your book. Yes. Oh, yeah. Joe Bryaf is, 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 is a glam rock character who never made it. He came too late, you know? <laughs> He, but he's the first overly gay true glam rock guy, and he's actually I mean, the, the name isn't great. Joe Bryaf doesn't ring it. Joe Bryaf. But he was he was touted, right? I mean, he, there was some buzz. He was hyped. Yeah, he there was hyped. a lot of hype. Yeah, he was he was totally hyped, and um, the only so many years later, <laughs> decades later, <laughs> counters are flying off. <laughs> um, I'm working at Book Soup, and Morrissey comes in, and Morrissey. Uh, had a, for a little while, he had his own record label, and he did a compilation of Jabriah's recordings because he's this big Jabriah fan. And he was waiting in line, and he came up to me. I was behind the counter, and uh, I, you know, he's not a person you can really small talk, but mm-hmm. I said to him, you know, you put out that Jabriah record. I really appreciate that. I really like it. And he went, oh, you know, he was so happy that somebody likes Jabriah. Aww. And then I said, yeah, my dad took me to see him. And he went... <laughs> Your father, your you wait. You saw your father. You know, he's like this double name. Like, what is he? T-? And I said, yeah, the troubadour. And I pointed to the direction of the troubadour, which is you know, right not far from book soup. He went. He went like he went like you know, like you know the hitchhiking thing. You <laughs> you saw Joe for by you and he and then there's a line of people behind him. So I can't talk now. <laughs> you know, I'm a professional bookseller. You know? <laughs> so he left like this 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 cloud in his face. You just wowed Morrissey. Yes. And so about a week or two weeks later he shows up again and he's wearing like a long sort of coat and he's by the cooking section for some reason. And I said I said, you know, I went up and said, Oh hi, you know, just like that. And I kept walking and he said and he came up and says, Guess what I'm wearing? Uh, you know, like under his coat. And I said, I, I don't know more. What are you wearing? He opens he opens his coat and it's a, it's a Joe Bryaf t shirt. <laughs> Something he had made, yeah, and 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 then basically wanted information about Joe Bryaf. You want to know what was Joe Bryaf like? What like what did he sing? What is you know, what how did he play? You know what you know what what was the night like? Your father took you. Why did your father take you? And I said I said honestly, I'm not a Joe Bryaf fan. My father was a Joe Bryaf. He he wanted to see Joe Bryaf. He likes Joe Bryaf. So uh, and he used to say, I can't believe your father liked Joe Bryaf. You know, he didn't know who my father was at the point. And um, and he he and the only thing he could say is I once took I he said he told me I took Jabri, I, I bought a Jabriaf record and I brought it back home and my father saw it and he hit me oh. and then oh. then the, the the tune the, so the dialogue <laughs> became very dark all of a sudden. Well, it seems like yeah that was intense for him to meet someone whose father <laughs> yeah loved Jabriaf and wanted to share. But well, I'll be. Do you so guys remember Happy Father's Jabriah? Day. Yeah, I do. I do. You may not, you know, unless you're like a music freak, you heard, if you're connected to the music culture, you would have heard of Joe Bryaf. But he's sort of like, a, people ridicule him because he's gay. 
but also he is a hype, like, you know, somebody paid a lot of money to right. bring his name. And at the time, that's like an unreal no-no to hype somebody in that way. Sure, it's the opposite of yeah, the DIY. I bet I am now, of the, as of uh, June 14th, 2019, I'm a big Joe Bryant fan now. I love him. Wow. He's very interesting. He's like, he's, he comes from Broadway. I mean, he was in the original production of Hair. And his songs are very kind of Broadway-ishy pop, you know, but he's very unique, and he, but he's overly, his themes is very gay. Oh, Father's so he, Day? He and, I, I was going to say, and, and, I, Diane Keaton and he were in the same uh, cast. Yes. And uh, Richard, uh, and singing backup was Richard um, American Gigolo. Um, Here. Yeah. Mm. Wow. Yeah, so Father's Day for a lot of interestingly diverse fathers. So I recommend my book, Tosh, Going from Walls from His World. Jobriath. Put on Jobriath while you read Tosh. Tosh, which actually came out a year ago? book came out, no, it came out in last January. Okay. So it's pretty recent still. And uh, besides being able to, if, if people cannot find it in a bookstore, they should scream and shout and... And whatever, but it may well be at a bookstore near near the listener. At this point, there's no excuse. If one wants to purchase the book, it, it should be available at every bookstore. But they can special order the book easily, easily special order the book for you, as well as all the major online stores where right. shops at. If you want to do that as well. Well, congratulations for making it into all the bookstores. Ten years. Uh, it's, it's just. It's yeah, really. Ten years and, and a worthwhile. Uh, it didn't, you know, it wasn't a struggle. I mean, the writing of it was not a struggle at all. It was sort of a. Um, I look at it as an adventure, and again, I like writing. I enjoy the whole process of writing. So, what's hard is trying to figure what to write, of course. Mm-hmm. But once you get the subject matter, it's sort of endless, you know. And it's very. Um, and I, I, I didn't read that many memoirs because I, 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 I sort of want to stay away from the professional memoir. I know, like um, Martin Amos wrote a book about his father. And I thought that's obviously something very close to what I'm doing, I presume. But I didn't, I, I didn't read his book. Well, happy Father's Day to you, your father, your mother. Yeah, happy Father's Day to my mom. Um, happy Father's Day to you. Marcy's father. Marcy's father, yes. Uh, and everyone else. And I just want to thank you. Happy Father's Day oh, to my yeah. father and, and mother. <laughs> thank you so much for joining us and for being so gracious and generous with your time. It's a true pleasure to be among this family here. Thank you. So on that note, uh, thank you anyone who's out there listening, and uh, tune in next time. (laughs) Bye-bye. This is your podcast, Interlocutor. And I wonder which of us, you or I, will be the first to purchase 10,000 copies of Dasha's book, And will they throw us a parade? I satisfy myself knowing that we live in a world of infinite possibilities, some of which you can discover by searching through the podcasts at slenunciator.com. Take control of your destiny, and even mine, by emailing us at silverlakeenunciator at gmail.com. We always want to hear from you but only after listening to our musical commander-in-chief, Fingers Del Rey. With that, I say, hail and farewell!
Thank you.